So I want to continue with what we've been doing with the All of Life interviews. And each week, we've been bringing people up here who have really exemplified what it looks like to live out their faith in various spheres of life, to live all of life all for Jesus. So we're going to invite Eddie up, and we're going to do the interview with him today. Eddie Landwehr, give him a hand. So you may think that we're... um, that he's actually a stunt double for Mr. Clean or that we've hired some security for Ricardo. But no, it's none of those. Eddie is actually a teacher. So tell us about what, what you do. Um, like you said, I'm a PE teacher and an AVID teacher, which is a program to help prepare students for college, to help them succeed in high school and get them ready for college at a high school down in Chandler. That's great. So as you work as a teacher, Scripture calls us to be imitators of God. What does it look like for you to imitate God in the work that you do? Um, So we're created in God's image, and God is excellent. And so we should do our work in an excellent way. And then also our students should be expected to produce excellent work. And so um, trying to have really high standards for what the students need to accomplish and the way that they, they complete tasks and the way that they do things. And then... Um, knowing just the way that I obviously don't always meet up to the standard, and there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's, you know, chance after chance, being patient with the students when they make mistakes or when they make wrong choices and you have to help them and guide them and teach them along the way to help them do better in the future. That's good. That's good. So uh, what does it look like for you to serve and bless the community as a teacher? Um, So... With PE, and then just all the kind of the different subjects you can take within PE, health, weight training, whatever, we are trying to train the students to, to live a life past high school, past college, past, you know, into adulthood where they're, they're living a healthy, active lifestyle, making choices to exercise, to make good food choices, to do all the things, hoping that they will then get the benefits of improved health and hopefully decreased, you know, incidence of chronic disease and, and different things like that so that they can live a more healthy life based on the choices that they make. And then through the, uh, the AVID program that helps kids get into college, a lot of the students in that program can be first-generation college students for their family. And so by giving them the tools that they need to be accepted into and attend college and then also be able to succeed in college, we're kind of trying to help put them on a path towards maybe changing the, their family tree in a way and just, you know, the, what they're able to accomplish and what they can help their family and their, their future kids accomplish. That's great. One of the things I really appreciate about Eddie is you can watch the news and look on Facebook and everybody's debating health care policy and whatnot, but day in, day out, he gets to do something about that with the next generation. And he's even been so kind to make a... Uh, a workout plan for me and don't let me be the judge of how effective he is because I'm just getting started here but he's a really generous guy with that so tell us how we can pray for you and for uh, those in your field Um, there's been some changes in teaching the last couple years just as how uh, teachers are evaluated and the way that they're supposed to teach and, and some just different standardized tests that are coming down that you know, the students will have to take in the future. And so with all those changes, it's easy to be 
distracted by those, frustrated with those. And um, as teachers, we can take our focus off the kids and get grumpy or upset or tend to complain. So if we would just focus our attention on what matters, and that's teaching and training the kids the way that we should. That's great. That's great. Well, we want to pray for Eddie, but also pray for the other teachers. We realize that if you're a teacher, you've probably just recently started classes, and we, we really care for you and the work that you do. Actually, uh, Ricardo and I, we're going to be hosting a gathering to, uh, at, toward the end of September to bring uh, the teachers together um, and to pray for you and just to have you meet each other. But if you're a teacher, we're not going to ask you to say anything or embarrass you, but would you stand up because we're going to pray for you. So if you're a teacher or you're studying to be a teacher, stand up. All right. Great. Yeah, you can clap for him. That's a good idea. All right. Let's, let's, let's pray for Eddie and for the folks standing around us. God, we thank you. We thank you for those that you have called to train and to shape and to pour their lives into um, the, the future generations to work in schools, to endure bureaucracy sometimes. And God, we ask that you would bless them immensely, uh, that they would be a blessing, that they would be able to work with excellence, that they would be able to work with patience and compassion. We pray for the schools around us, that they would uh, flourish. Um, and we just thank you that all of the subject matter from history to math um, to uh, the various languages you could learn, all point to the great uh, world that you've created and that you will one day fully restore. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Would you thank him again? Have a seat. <laughs> All right. Hey, if this is your first time here, uh, my name is Ricardo. I want to personally welcome you guys to be with us as we journey through the book of Romans. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Romans for several weeks now. I believe this is week 19, and we'll continue to look at it um, for another 50 weeks. And so, um, yeah. So, Connor, you're at the beginning, so welcome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's jump there. Romans chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. Again, Romans chapter 4. Um, I got some good news and some bad news. Uh, the good news, one, if you don't have your Bible, um, the good news is there's plenty of Bibles in the world that you can have. The bad news is we don't have any today. So, um, normally we hand out Bibles, but our order that we place in for more Bibles are not here yet, so... Uh, you'll be able to look at this, the screen, and the scriptures should be there. Um, usually people will say, why do you hand out Bibles if you have the words on the screen? We believe that having a Bible in your hand, it's muscle memory and habits that show you where to go and, and reading God's word, and, and we usually don't allow you to take the screen home with you to read, and so, but the Bibles, that's something that we would, uh, we would recommend. So we'll have that next week. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now, if you heard or can remember the scripture reading... Um, I know that many of you came in this evening, um, and the, the question that's been pressing on everyone's head and everyone's mind is, how can a person be saved if they're not circumcised, right? <laughs> right? You dropped off your kids, you locked up your bike, and you're like, gosh, I really hope Ricardo today just talks about circumcision, because I just, <laughs> all the, I mean, predestination, whatever, circumcision is what we want to talk about, Right? <laughs> 
uh, I, all day, it's just been like hard for me. In fact, because I'm, I'm kind of somewhat of a child in a lot of ways that I have not been in the room when they've been reading scripture because there's like 10 times it's like circumcised, uncircumcised, circumcised. And it's like, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> it's like this. And, and what, I, what I'm thinking, you try to get lens and, and minds of like, what, is it, what would it be like if this is your first time here? So like some of you are like, this is your first time coming to redemption. And it's like, whatever, maybe you've been around the church and so it's not too unfamiliar with you. And then some of you are here who are like, this is the first time I've gone to church and I show up. My friend's like, hey, come to this church. And they're talking about circumcision. And you're like, what are they going to do today, right? <laughs> Everything you thought about. Right? So, so what, why does Paul talk about circumcision so much? Um, and what, I'm, what I mean by that is if you were here four or five weeks ago, Ryan Arneson came and he taught and circumcision came up then. If you were here a year ago and we talked through the book of Galatians, circumcision came up there. Like, why does Paul keep talking about circumcision? What does it have to do with the gospel, and what does it have to do with the church? And for us to understand that, before we jump into the scripture, because we only have a few verses here, it'd be good for me to give you a history on the apostle Paul, his understanding of theology, his understanding of the church and how she is to express God's intentions in this world, we would understand why he talks about circumcision so much. So let me give you that history. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, before he became a Christian, he was a believer of God, meaning all of the scriptures in the Old Testament he knew, he memorized, he was a Pharisee. Um, he, he knew the law. There, there wasn't a person who believed God as strong as he did, yet he didn't understand the gospel. Now, some of you may be thinking, how could someone know God and believe God and, and, and not understand the gospel? Well, he didn't understand. He didn't understand Jesus. He was a Hebrew boy that grew up in Hebrew scriptures and understood it, but didn't see that Jesus was God's own son, the Messiah. And you can read about Paul saying, I did everything that a good Hebrew boy was supposed to be. Like, I out-Hebrewed everybody else. He talks about that in Philippians chapter 3. Like, essentially, he goes, I was that guy within the Hebrew culture. But then what we read about in Acts chapter 9, when we first hear about, um, Acts chapter 8, when we first hear about the Apostle Paul, is that there's a man named Stephen that's being persecuted. He's being killed. He's been stoned for being a Christian. And it says a young man by the name of Saul, whose name would later become Paul, is holding the jackets of the men who were throwing stones. And then it says this Paul continued to ravage the church because he thought that the church in itself was against God, even though it was God's primary means and vehicle to display his grace for the world. Paul didn't get that. So Jesus himself comes to him, not in a vision, but shocks him, blinds him, um, literally speaks to him and says, why are you persecuting the church? In fact, what Jesus says to him is, when you begin to persecute the church, you're persecuting me. And then Paul's eyes later were open, literally and spiritually, and he began to understand the gospel, and he became passionate about this gospel. In fact, um, he got some training, and his first church that he came on staff was, was in a church of Antioch, in the city called Antioch. And this church was a unique church. Unique in this is that the gospel had taken root in this city, and there was men and women and children from all types of walks of life. It was a very multicultural experience. And that's where Paul had his understanding. And so he's witnessing for the first time Jewish people and Gentile, anybody who wasn't ethnically Jew, be together and watch the Holy Spirit um, just grow this church. And so that was his experience. And if you move forward to Acts chapter 15, there's a council. And in this council, there, there, there were the leaders and the rulers of, of the church. And they were having a debate and the debate that they were having, ironically, 
was on circumcision, right? A bunch of guys getting together. It's like, come on, right? And so they're, they're talking about, are, does someone have to be circumcised in order to be a part of God's family? Because if you were Jewish, you would have understood that's what it meant. It meant to be a part of God's family was you believed in God and circumcision was a sign. And we'll come back to this word sign. It was a sign. And they're saying, well, now with the church, does God work through people who were not circumcised? And Paul's there going, listen, the church that I'm a part of, we're seeing the Spirit do incredible things. And that we have to understand that we can't put barriers in front of people because God is drawing all types of people to himself. And whenever you put external barriers in the way, people won't really understand the gospel. And then from there, they said, a person did not have to be circumcised. And Paul went because he understood the implication of the gospel. He began to plant churches. And he planted churches in urban cores. And what that meant is, like any major city you go to, there are people of every single culture and every single race and all type of preferences. And Paul planted the gospel. And Jesus Christ drew men and women to himself of all of these different spheres. And they all became eclectic churches. And Paul began to write to these churches because he knew if there was something that was going to distort the gospel, it was going to be religion or things that you place in front or barriers of the gospel that it would distort it, that people wouldn't be able to believe in Jesus. They wouldn't have a, a pure gospel. And that big issue was circumcision because majority of the people in churches at this time were Jewish people. And Paul knew something. Paul knew that the gospel had implications, not just for you vertically to be saved with God, but also horizontally that it should be welcoming, that the gospel in itself reaches and draws in all different types of people, and that when the church begins to gather, that it should reflect those things. And the reason why we know Paul believed that is because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, he says that the gospel was preached through Abraham. Looking at Genesis chapter 12, when God told through Abraham that it was his desire to work through Abraham to draw in all the nations. Paul knew that this had a multicultural, eclectic implication. And then when you put something that God didn't place there as a barrier, anything culturally or religiously or even a preference in front of it, it was actually ruining the witness of the gospel. And so Paul wrote letters. And two letters that you see that he really talks about this issue is one in Ephesians. He says, listen, um, there's been a wall between Jews and Gentiles, and that wall is no longer there. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 that through the blood of Christ that he's, he's broken down that barrier and created out of two men, one man, meaning there's a new identity that comes in the church. And then he speaks more passionately about circumcision in Galatians, and you should go back and read that. Um, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we or even an angel were to come back to you and preach a different gospel, meaning a gospel different than by grace working through faith, um, that anything that you have to add to it, like circumcision, because if we or another angel were to show back up and teach you a different gospel, he says, may they be accursed. Literally means, may they be damned. So he's serious about it. And then he's even more serious about it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul says, to those who unsettle you, meaning those Jewish people who are trying to tell you that in order to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised, he goes, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So he's pretty serious about it. <laughs> like, that's in the Bible. You can read it. We'd give you one, but we don't, we don't. <laughs> we don't have any today. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5. And so with that in mind, Paul has this understanding that circumcision, when it's not placed in its right context as a sign, but becomes grace, it ruins the gospel. 
and that if we, have a God, if we are going to be a church that grows in being the church that God desires us to be, we have to understand the pure, the pure understanding of the gospel and not put things in it, not put barriers around us. And so we have to understand what it means for circumcision to be a sign. If you look at me in the text here, um, verse 11 says this. It says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal. This was Abraham. That word sign and seal, it could be used uh, synonymously. It's, it's just a sign. And so for, for the sake of structure and our time uh, this evening and going through these short verses, thinking about a sign, um, that's how we're going to walk through this text, looking how we can grow to be the church that God had in mind when he spoke to Abraham, the church that Paul had in mind when he began to plant churches, and ultimately the church that we desire to be in response to the gospel is one, understanding a sign. First thing we understand about a sign is a sign points to a reminder. And so it reminds us of something. Second, a sign points to a destination. A destination so that everybody can see how to get there. And then lastly, a sign points to participation. So a sign points to a reminder, a destination, and then participation. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as Righteousness, And so here's the first point. It points to a, a reminder. Um, what Paul starts first here is reminding us of something. But he starts with the question, is this blessing? Well, let's talk about that blessing. Last week, we ended in verses 7 verses 8, which were quotes from um, Psalm 32 from David. And it said, blessed, blessed. We said that word blessed means um, it was the most commonly used word in the Old Testament. And it means to have a condition where you are deeply secure, content, and happy in the person of God. Um, this was regardless of whatever your circumstances were, but you were content in who God was. And this blessing was given to us by grace, that God himself had wiped away our sins, and that God himself was not going to treat us as our sin deserved, and that God himself looked at us. We had no righteousness, but he gave us the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul is saying, now, is this blessing, this relationship and intimacy that we have with God, is this for the circumcised only or also for the uncircumcised? Is it for those who grew up in church their whole life or for those who were far from God? Um, is, is it for those who know their Bibles and can articulate doctrine or people who maybe don't really understand much other than Christ and him crucified? Um, he's saying, who is this for? And then Paul points to a reminder, like a sign does. He says, we've said that righteousness was accredited to him or accounted to him or reckoned to him by faith. He reminds us of this grace. For the past three or four weeks, that phrase has been coming up. It was accounted to him as righteousness. And Paul has been hammering in that point that when we grow as a church, it is not about externals, things that we need to do or have to do in order for God to accept this, but it's what God has already done. It's grace. And so the sign in itself is not, um, cannot give you grace. A sign can only point to grace. And so circumcision was not something that was Abraham was given as grace. God had given him grace. God had done a work in his life. And then Abraham was circumcised. In the same way, for those of you in this room that are Christians, God did a work in your life. And then you responded. It wasn't that you decided one day, you know what, I'm going to do some good things for God, 
and then I'm going to show him what I've done, and hopefully he'll accept me. He says, no, 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 I will do something great in your life by giving you my son Jesus, and then your life will be radically changed. He says it was accredited. We didn't have anything in our pockets, but God gave us, out of the richness of his mercy, he gave us his son, Jesus. And so, as a church, when we uh, remember grace for ourselves, even individually, personally, it does something. I think sometimes as Christians, we, we begin moving fast and we go from one thing to the next. You're thinking about what you're going to do after this and what you did before this that we never in the moment. We never just, just, just pause and realize and, and remember, God, what have you done in my life? It, it's one of the reasons why we come to the communion table every single week is to say, just pause and remember what God has done in your life, what God is doing in your life, what God promises to do in your life. When a church begins to understand grace, it's easy for us to accept the other. Because remember, the context here is that the Jewish people were having a hard time with accepting Gentiles into the church. They, they were having a hard time having this inclusion of both Jew and Gentile. It had not been like this. But when you begin to understand grace, it's not that way because you understand that you didn't do anything for what God had given you, but he, did, he gave it to you out of his love. And it, it, it transforms the way you think about discipleship. Every single person in this room that's a Christian, you're called a disciple. No matter how mature you are in the faith, you are called to make disciples. That's what we do as the people of God. Sometimes it's your children, sometimes it's your friends, whoever it may be, you're called to make disciples. But what happens is in discipleship, apart from really relying on grace, it's one person has a lot of knowledge, and so they say, I know more than you, so I'm going to come alongside you and teach you things, read books and do a lot of things, and it becomes highly cognitive, but it doesn't affect the heart. And it's usually because I know more. Or on the other side, it's someone who has a, a walk with the Lord that behaviorally and morally, they're, they're living their life upright, and so they're not doing some of the things that you're doing. And basically, they come alongside people and say, listen, your life's a mess. You do stupid stuff, and I don't do stupid stuff, so follow me. And it's like, wow, that sounds like great discipleship, right? And, and usually, it's like, just stop it. Like, that's like the principle. It's like, what's your counseling method? Stop it, right? And, and that's discipleship. However, when you remember that it was accredited to you, that no matter where you are when grace found you, I, I don't know your story, wherever you were when grace found you, whether you were four or whether you were 40, you realize when you remember that moment, um, you, you realize you're no different than anyone else. And people who are mature Christians, they grow in reminding themselves of grace. Discipleship be, begins to be what Rene Padilla says. It's one beggar telling the other beggar where they both can find bread. That, it, that it's not, I know more, therefore, I do better, therefore. No, no, no. We look at Jesus together. One beggar telling the other beggar where they both can find bread. And, and hear me on this. That is not saying that a person can't be mature. No, we ought to be mature. In fact, many of our problems, m- a lot of us in this room, our issues are that we've been walking with Jesus for years. We have not matured. And that's not as a result because God's grace has not been in your life It's a result of disobedience and other things. And so it's not saying that just because you're a beggar pointing to bread doesn't mean that you're not growing in grace. In fact, growing in grace is acknowledging your weaknesses. Paul says, let's remember that this blessing that we have is a reminder of grace, and it shapes our discipleship. It shapes our identity, that our grace, the grace that we have now, our identity is not about what somebody else places on us or some work that we've been able to accomplish, but our identity, we can say like the Apostle Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. 
It, it, it shapes our understanding of success because we can say, everything that I've done, I've done it to the glory of God. God has worked in and through me. It even shapes our understanding of failure, which we've been talking about week after week after week, is that we can confess our sin to God and to others because we realize in Christ we've already forgiven, been forgiven and we've been welcomed. Hear me this, collectively. When a church remembers grace, just on a tangible level, the community of faith that we have, like when we do a day like this, Sundays where we gather together, that we become um, welcoming, um, there's, a, there's a sense of humility, um, and there's also a sense of love. Because you realize everything you have has been given to you from God. And so that creates hum- humility instead of pride. I mean, you, you've never met, the, I've never met the person, maybe you have, I've never met the person that when the gospel begins to penetrate their heart or they reminded themselves of God, um, that they begin to think about how awesome they were, Right? I mean, we're going to sing a song later today, Jesus Paid It All. And no matter what church you go to, whether it's a, uh, a church where it's a black church or a Latino church or what, no matter what, when God's people sing that song, all of them are like, Jesus paid it all. It becomes this amazing song because it just talks about the gospel. It's never Jesus paid it all. It's always Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. There's not a guy in the back going, yeah, Jesus paid it all. How good am I, right? Like, Man, he did a good job, but it was me too, right? It just no, no. It's when you begin to understand the gospel, you give it away. So there's humility, and then there's welcoming. You become welcoming, and this is something at a church that we said we wanted to get better in. We've been saying this for two years, and we've gotten this much better, right? And and, and basically, what that means is when you understand grace, when you remember grace and what you've received, um, you realize you were welcomed, like you were welcomed to God's family. And God didn't say, hey, join my affinity, become like me, and act like me, vote like me, and then I will welcome you. No, he just welcomed you as is. And I don't think that we're intentionally, like, not welcoming. I just think it happens. And here, here how it happens. Earlier this morning in the 9 o'clock service, which I know a lot of you guys weren't awake yet, but we have a 9 o'clock service. And, then, and then at the 9 o'clock service, is, um, there, was a, there was a couple that showed up probably 15 minutes early, which I knew that's a new couple, right? No one shows up that early, right? And so... They're walking in, and, and, and you know, we're, I'm talking to a group of people, and someone else is talking, and they just kind of walked in, and they sat down, and they're the only ones in here. Maybe some of you had that experience, too, and, and I'm thinking, oh, my mind, we got to go talk to them. I got to go talk to them. Someone's going to go talk to them, because here, here's what happens. People will go into a church service, and they'll read online, we're a welcoming community. We're gospel-centered, and they show up, and they go, you know what? I walked in that church. No one said anything to me until after the second song, the worship guy goes greet people, and I finally said hello to somebody, and someone said hello to me. And it's not because we didn't like them. It's not because we didn't love them. As we do, we weren't even looking. When you begin to understand grace, you, be, you desire to be a community that's always looking. Who is not just new, but who's here that I don't know that I can just say, hello, my name is... Slim Shady, I don't know, right? (laughs) (laughs) It makes us welcoming. (laughs) Point I was trying to make. (laughs) It it um it it becomes a loving community because we're we're constantly making much of Jesus and not of ourselves. Paul starts with the sign points to a reminder. What we need to do as a church, individually and corporately, is remember God's grace. He turns back to that force by asking a question and then pointing to Abraham. And not Abraham's, what Abraham did, but the faith in which he had by grace. The second thing that a sign does, 
It doesn't just point to a reminder that we need to be a church that reminds yourself of grace, but a sign is, points to a destination, right? If you've ever uh, driven on a highway before and you've driven to California, you've driven somewhere else, um, you, you'll see a sign that says, you know, 50 miles to Tucson or whatever it may be. That sign is for everyone to see, everyone. Um, it's not just there for only the people who are going to Tucson. It's there for every single person to see. And on, on that, that sign in itself is available for everyone. It just depends on some people will actually get off and go to do Tucson or whatever the city that, that they desire to go to. Um, Paul has here talking about circumcision and the reason of what God, what God was doing, the purpose of what God was doing to Abraham had everything to do with this grace wasn't only for you. And this grace wasn't only for me. But it was a sign pointing to what God's intention was for this world. For God's intention for that person. We all have a person that we're like, I don't think God can save that person, Ricardo. That this grace is for that person as well. And now this is when Paul, verses 10 and 11 here, begins to unpack um, what, he's, what he means in, in, in circumcision. Verse 10 and 11, he says this, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was, it was not after. But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So here, here's what's happening here. He says it's a destination. It's a destination. A sign is a destination. It cannot get you there. It can only point you to a place. And that place in itself had better be good, right? This past summer, I kept um, painting this picture of the beach to my kids and never gone to the beach. And, and I would go get sand and we'd go to the playground and say, there's a lot of sand at the beach. And then, and then I would tell them there's water there. I wouldn't go get water, but you get it, right? And, and we would just say, this is what it's going to be like. We're going to Huntington Beach. And then um, you have to actually get there to enjoy it. Can you imagine? The sign is not going to get us there. Can you imagine? Let's just say you were driving to California and I was with my kids and I just said, um, hey, it says Huntington Beach, you know, 280 miles, but, but the sign said Huntington Beach, and so I got off, right, and said, here you go, guys, welcome to the beach, and we're in the middle of the desert. Like, honestly, my two-year-old, because he's kind of clueless, he'd be like, yay, wow, <laughs> this is amazing, it's a javelina, right? <laughs> my four-year-old would have been like, what is this? <laughs> like, this is not the beach, you showed me pictures, this is not it. Here, here, here's Paul's point to the Jewish people. When you begin to just, just say circumcision, circumcision, we love God, circumcision, he goes, people get there and they go, this is not good. This is not the destination for so many reasons, right? <laughs> like, this is not good. Like, this, this is not it. Paul, Paul's fear was, you can go through all of that as hard as that could be and not experience it. A sign can only point. It doesn't get you there. And so Paul says here, this, this is what happened. He says in verse 11, he received, this, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The question he's asking, he's, he's answering, he goes, Paul, or excuse me, Abraham was circumcised after God did a work in his life. Hear me, this is what it means for us. God does a work in your life by grace. And whatever actions and obedience that you have from there, it is a response to the gospel every time. And what Paul is saying is, you guys, Jewish people, are holding up Abraham as, yeah, but Abraham was circumcised. Paul goes, you're right. He was circumcised. But was it before or after God did something in his life? He says it was before. It was before. God did something in his life. And then, excuse me, and then afterwards he was circumcised. And then Paul says this, here's what the purpose was. 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be accounted to them as well. But he's talking about this grace that God had. It's God always had you in mind. I love it when I understand the teaching of God's plan for salvation for this world. It precedes anything that we can think about. Most of us have these people in mind that could not, would not ever be saved, believe in God, because we don't have a divine perspective. Paul is able to peel back a little bit and say, listen, years ago, God had you in mind, and he had all types of people in mind. We can look through the scripture and say, even when God chose um, Abraham, it was not only for Abraham, but that Abraham would be used by God so that his family would be used by God to be a display to the world. And you can even go back further than that. Even before God created the world, what Revelation lets us know is that the Lamb was slain. Speaking of Christ Jesus, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, when they set about creating the world, knowing giving us volition means a freedom to choose, that we would sin against him. And the only way that he would have a family for himself is if his son would go and shed his blood before he created God had you in mind. And so it would be foolish of us who have received grace not to expect hope, have faith that God has other people in this world, in our family, in our city, in mind. Paul looks at the Jewish people and go, what you're doing by putting circumcision before the gospel is you're saying that God didn't have them in mind and they would never know God. Remove your cultural baggage so that people may see Jesus. It's a destination so that all would see, that all would be able to see. Now, those who by their choice, those who by faith desire to exit in a destination called grace, God welcomes them all as they are, not just people who have it put together. Now, now let me bring this to us real quick. When we, um, we may say circumcision, really not that big of a deal for us, like most of us believe that you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. I, I, let me just tell you this just in case this is not clear. You don't, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. So hopefully none of you guys are running out like, oh, man, I better take care of this before you do that, right? In fact, later, normally we do four ways we respond. We're going to have five ways today. <laughs> and so if you feel the tugging on your heart by the Spirit, if that's you, and these... <laughs> Our issue, our issue may not be that, and we may not be putting barriers, but collectively, hear me now, collectively, there are things that we do implicitly, and maybe not even intentionally, that I would say exclude people. I don't think it's a belief issue as it is functional, meaning the Jewish people were actually believing you need to have grace plus something else. I don't think, I think we get grace, but I think that we get grace plus affinity. We don't get God's plan for everybody. Here's what I mean. We may not put cultural things there, like the Jewish people did. Um, we may not put religious things there. And sometimes it's even hard for us to see how they did it, but I get it. I mean, can't you see how they did it? I mean, think about this. Um, in the Roman society, Jewish people were a part of the subdominant culture. They weren't part of the dominant culture. And if, you, if you're saying, I don't even understand what you mean, dominant culture versus subdominant culture, what's a subdominant culture? Chances are you live within the, the dominant culture. <laughs> Basically, a subdominant culture are a people who don't live 
naturally um, out of the values of the dominant culture, but they have to learn those values in order to work, go to school, and survive in the culture that they are. And what happens oftentimes is subdominant cultures, um, when it comes to religion, they have pockets of faith, no matter what their religion may be, and you'll see it. I've even found in Muslim community, like, so the mosque in my neighborhood is a, what is called a black mosque, or it's black-skinned Muslims, as opposed to the mosque up the street. And we have that even in Christian circles, that you have many churches that are segregated basically off, um, off their ethnicity. And part of it is they go there so that they can have, metaphorically, a place to let their hair down and be themselves. And so um, nothing bad in Christian circles to have cultural preferences. However, when those cultural preferences become intermingled with the gospel, it can become exclusive. So the church I grew up in, um, it was a, a, a predominantly... I keep saying predominantly. It wasn't predominantly. It was just all black, right? <laughs> I was telling one of the interns, his last name is Slobodnik, so I'm like, wasn't a lot of Slobodniks hanging around our, <laughs> our congregation, right? <laughs> so one of the things we would do, which I love that we did, was every, every February, which is Black History Month, all the teenagers in the church had to pick a poem from Booker T. Washington or Langston Hughes or someone to read, um, not even read, you had to memorize it in front of the whole congregation and then recite it, and it was great. It was, we would celebrate Black History Month, and everyone loved it, and we would just do all this stuff that, that celebrated it. And you know, people were like, are you going to do that redemption? No, not because I don't want to. It's just I don't, I, I don't want to, right? There's this, like, there's... But I think sometimes those things get in the way, okay? So that, that's, I can get, though, how the Jewish people wanted to hold on to, like, their cultural thing of circumcision. But us, ours is not so much cultural as it is preference. Here's what I mean. Someone may get the, just by being in a worship service or maybe coming here for a while and looking at around, again, sometimes this is implicit, sometimes it's intentional, unintentional. They may get... You know who's not welcomed here? Anyone who's old, excuse me, anyone who's older (laughs) than, I don't know, let's say 35. It's like, what are you doing here, right? There's a church for you down the street, (laughs) right? And that's that's not our intentions, but just look around, right? Some of you guys are older, like, yeah, that's right. Um, another thing here, and this is really juvenile in my opinion, but it's, it's this whole like anti-suburban thing. It's like, oh, you live where? You live in Gilbert? Oh, you live in what? Oh, man, you, man, you, must, not, you must not love Jesus or something, right? It's like, and, and, and honestly, they, no, one, no one believes that. I don't, think, I don't think, again, I don't think it's a belief thing. I don't think it's saying like, hey, since you, you know, live on a farm, like you, you, you don't love Jesus. But it is kind of like you're other. And it becomes this smugness to it. Kind of like, oh, you're other. Okay, that is something that our culture does. Hear me on this. If you're a Christian in this room, listen to me. That is what our culture does. Never, ever, ever in the Bible does it say, be like your culture. Even in Christian history, the symbols have been the lion, it has been the lamb, it has been the dove, never the chameleon, never to fit in. And so what's bothersome is when we have a young generation of 20s and 30s-somethings, which most of us are a part of, that go, we're anti-suburban, and then that leaks into the church, which is supposed to be a display of God's gospel for all types of people, and we go, ah, we're smug towards it? Guys, that's ridiculous. But we do it. I do it. I do it. It's ridiculous. These are are barriers. They're political barriers. 
Democrats look at Republicans and they go, there's no way you could be a Christian because you don't care for the poor. And the Republicans look at Democrats and say, you don't care about anything and, and you don't care about responsibilities and whatnot. And we have these people fighting each other. And yet in the, in the gospel, we're supposed to meet together. We're supposed to meet together. Uh, here's what I'm, I'm not saying get rid of your race or get rid of your culture. Absolutely not. I'm not even saying get rid of your political decisions. Absolutely not. We're just saying don't let your political decisions dictate your community. Don't let your preferences and where you live or where you don't live dictate your community, especially when many of you guys who are 25 who hate the suburbs are going to get a little bit older, have a little bit more kids, and realize that's a lot cheaper to live in Gilbert. <laughs> and then you're going to over-spiritualize. Oh, I heard this sermon one day, and Ricardo was like, yeah, so now I'm in Gateway. <laughs> so... <laughs> But that, 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 those are things, that, and you can think about your own, what is it? I know I have my prejudices, and I, I have realized this about myself, is I love racial equality so much that I found that I show grace, I show no grace to people who show no grace. That makes sense? People in the church that are not gracious towards other people, I feel like I don't show them grace, which is completely the antithesis of what I say, right? And we all have it. And what Paul is saying is, is when we put those things around us and we communicate that, there are people who would desire to be a part of God's family that are not receiving that welcome, that grace is for you as well. The, the beggar and the beggar saying, that's the bread. Like my whole existence is about Jesus. It centers around him. Pa- Paul says, um, the purpose was to make him. The, the, the sign was to point to the destination, but the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. Without being circumcised, without fitting into our agenda, without living in a certain neighborhood or drinking a certain type of beer, without shopping at a certain restaurant, is the purpose was to bring all of these people together under God. Circumcision in itself wasn't even unique to God's people. Like when you read history, you understand that every culture around them, they did circumcision. They just did it differently, except the Philistines. They didn't get circumcised. But everyone else, they, they did it because um, they did it as a sign for a man that was becoming an adult, right? It was like, hey, today's your day. And now that you're a man, like flints, knives, the whole deal, right? God's people did it on the eighth day. And Paul makes it clear, grace preceded it. God did a work. And so first, a sign reminds it, so you need to remind yourself of grace. And then also, a sign points to a destination, and that destination is for all people, and we as a church can never get in the way for the people in whom God has chosen to call into his family. Amen? That means we die to our preferences. We die to our particular things in order that Christ may be known, because Abraham, Paul says, becomes the father of everyone who believes no qualifications except for belief. Lastly, about a sign, as a sign points to participation. And, and here's what I mean by that. You, you've, you've seen billboards, you've seen advertisements. There's usually um, an advertisement of a, of a good-looking man or a good-looking woman that's, that's on the advertisement. And what they're basically saying is, don't you want to be like them? And um, even though whatever they're advertising, it could be like, honestly, like a lawnmower, and there's usually some ultra buff guy, like, you know, pushing the lawnmower, muscles everywhere. And, and you, you know, and if you're a guy or maybe a girl, I don't know, and maybe you're like, you know what, I want to, yeah, I kind of want to have a six-pack. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to mow the lawn, but I do want to, I want a six-pack. There, there's a sense of um, abs, six-pack, just in case you guys are thinking I was thinking about something, something else. All right. <laughs> is is there, there is a sense of participation. That's what advertisement, you want to participate on this. Here's what Paul does here. 
This is the last point. Verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised, not, it says, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Walk in the footsteps of faith. Paul is saying, Jew and Gentile, white and black, old and young. He's talking about his church, God's church. Um, suburban, urban. Hip-hop, emo. Uptown, downtown. Nerd, jock. I mean, you get it, right? <laughs> Together. And the participation is not that you have to lose who you are, but actually become fully who God's called you to be. And this participation is not what the Jews are saying, act like Abraham. No, it's Paul saying, believe like Abraham. And so, just in conclusion, what would it, I mean, just what, just think about our city, just think about Tempe. What would Tempe look like if just our church constantly became a community of grace where we remembered grace? That everything we have in Christ was given to us. What would our community look like if we realized that this grace, it, it was, it, it's, it's for everybody. Everyone's driving down the road, every single person, and God is flashing God's grace. Here's the destination. And we are people who are pointing and saying, you can get in on this no matter what you've ever done or what you will ever do or your background or your pedigree. What would it look like if we believed in this grace ourselves and we made it readily available by our actions and our activities and our words to the community around us? And lastly, imagine what it would look like if we participated in it. But not if we just showed up to a service and sang some songs, but we took our whole lives seriously, not just as individuals, as a church, and said we participate in faith. We trust in the work of God. Just imagine what our community would look like. Let's pray.